and welcome to the Signpost Inn podcast, a space at life's crossroads to connect with God and find direction. Pour yourself a drink, grab a seat, and join us on the back porch for a friendly conversation about Christian prayer, spirituality, and faithful theology. My name's Matt. And I'm Brandon, and we're really glad you're here. The Signpost Inn podcast is brought to you by the Signpost Inn ministry, where we offer spiritual direction, retreats and sabbatical residencies, and lots of resources and training. You can find out more about what we do and support us by visiting signpostin.org. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the back porch. And Matt, Peter, good to have you guys here with us today. Hi. Thanks, Brandon. Great to have you. Yeah, nice to be here with you guys again. This is our first episode in the new year and exciting. We're going to be trying out some new things as we go forward, new features and new ideas. But we have a question from last year this time that I really wanted to tackle. I think we mentioned it in our Christmas episode that we were going to tackle it. And so, yeah, this is kind of an exciting one for all of us. The question comes from Lauren, who lives in China. And I'm going to go ahead and read like the whole question. It's pretty lengthy, but I think you need to get the context. And then Matt, you've done a lot of work on this. So I'm going to toss the ball to you after that. So listeners, here's the question from Lauren. She says, what do you think about fantasy? I enjoy fantasy and world building. I personally think that I have been taught a lot by fantasy. God has used it to show me different things about the world and himself. And I was going through a difficult season and was watching an anime show called Naratu, and God kept using it to remind me that he loved me because the main character, Naruto, again, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. And God kept using that character, uh, the main character, he's constantly pursuing his friend to bring him back, redeem him to the village, if you will. This friend is actively a traitor who wants to destroy his former home, but Naruto won't give up on him. And God used that to remind me of himself and his love. But a few weeks ago in our Bible study, we don't have what you would usually call church anymore in China. Some people said that they hated everything to do with fantasy and magic and even Disney, and they couldn't believe any actual Christians would like that stuff. This might be kind of a Justin versus Tertullian kind of debate, but I wondered if you had any thoughts on it. So I think that's probably the place to start. So um, yeah, Matt, ball to you. What's your, what are your initial thoughts on this? Yes, I have so many thoughts on this. Um, <laughs> this is such a great question. And it's, it's something that I've actually been preparing to talk about with a local group of friends for some time. I think the first thing to do in starting out with this question is to recognize that the God of the Bible is a storytelling God. Jesus taught in parables frequently. In fact, he teaches in parables more than he ever just directly tells somebody what to do. Or, or how to think about something. He loves parables. Not only that, you, when you read the prophets, you recognize that they rely on these poetic images to teach a point so much more profoundly than just raw point by point, here's what I'm saying to you, listen. They, they use imagery and metaphor. And that's one of the things that is so interesting about Christianity. And, and now, with that in mind, look at the, the genre of allegory. I don't think there has been any other religion that has birthed out of it more allegorical tales than Christianity has. Allegory is a, a common use in literature. You can use it 
but very few people use it as a primary genre that they write in. It's not often, not everybody likes it, but you think about um, Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most, I, I, don't, I haven't actually looked up the statistics on this, but it's one of the greatest books in the English, English language. And it's a Christian book, and it's in the form of an allegory. Very powerful stuff there, right? Have y'all have y'all read the Pilgrim's Progress? Yeah, I just finished reading it again uh, recently, and it's just it's just so good. It's so good, and that's not even and that's not even the best Christian allegory we have. John Bunyan also wrote another book that's a little bit longer called Holy War, and it's in in the form of an allegory, and it's even better. I think it's the be- I think it's better than Pilgrim's Progress, but not a whole lot of people know about it. So what I hear, what I'm hearing is like large category storytelling. God is a storyteller. And so we then like what I, there's an imitation of God appropriately when we tell stories, like we're doing something very appropriate to who we are both as humans in God's image, but just even as Christ followers to tell stories, like Christ told stories. That's how he explained things. So even if, even on a purely human level, if he was not God, our leader of our organization used stories. We should too. <laughs> it's like learning from the master. Yes. Well, and, and there's an argument to be made and there are, um, you know, secular scholars who make this argument that human beings are just storytelling creatures. And there's nothing especially controversial about that. I mean, you look at the concept of what we would call prehistory. All we mean by prehistory is stories that are told in a way that don't really conform to our modern framework for what counts as history, right? I mean, the the art of history, well, it might be derogatory to say this, but sort of begins or takes off during the late Roman Empire when you actually had a very strong culture of academics and writing, right? And that was built on past culture of what the early Romans and Greeks did with in their society. So, I mean, storytelling has been around for a long time and we use stories to tell about the past. Even if you go back and look at cave paintings, right? What is that? Cave paintings are telling a story of some kind. There's something there, right? We may not understand the context because that's been lost to us, but we as human beings resonate with somebody telling a story, whether it's a true story or it's a fictional story, there's something about that where we we hear it and we put ourselves in that situation. We identify with the protagonist. We identify with the struggle that happens and we learn something from it. We learn something about ourselves. This is one of the things where artists, especially people that, that enjoy acting, like stage acting, love the most is because they're not just doing a performance but they're actually exploring the human experience. You know, if you ever meet somebody who's a real drama nerd, right? They, one of the things they love about the screenplay and stage acting and, and things like that is that it, it actually is kind of peeling back the onion of what humanity is and who we are deep down, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. So, okay. So I can understand, I can understand people telling stories as being what we do because we are repeating God, you know, God tells stories, we tell stories. That's part of what we do as his image. So what about this part of the question? So why do people not like fantasy then? Like why does mm. magic or 
fantastic stories. You know, I mean, in the question in our in Lauren's question, it, the people in her Bible study didn't like fantasy and magic. In fact, they, she quotes, I mean, I, you know, they said they hated everything to do with it. She had a much longer portion of the question and some of it had to do with it feels like um, spiritual stuff is more prevalent in China than in America and hmm. that yeah. people are more afraid of demonic influence, more aware of it even. Like she even, t- she's a teacher and she even mentions that a lot of her students listed witchcraft as one of their hobbies. Um, so, I mean, what's, how would you respond to that, Matt? I mean, like, okay, story, fine. Great. Allegory. Sure. Bunyan, he's a Christian. Those, those images are not fantasies. Those have direct Christian parallels, but what about stories that have magic in them? You know, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Well, I, I understand where people are coming from there. And I think such concerns actually should be taken seriously. Uh, because, it, especially for our friend who's writing to us from another country, whose cultural experience is very different. We live in a very secular culture that discounts any supernatural reality at all. Even mm-hmm. even sometimes we as Christians fall into the, the habit of thinking of, well, this is just the way the world works. It works by naturalistic things. And our Christianity is sort of like, yeah, but there's also this little thing off to the side. And even that's not fully accurate, right? But other parts of the world, things like witchcraft, things like occult practices are very common. I had a friend who served, our pastor actually, he was serving as a missionary in a Far East country. And one of the things that happened when a friend of his became a Christian is they asked for help to come to their house and throw away all of their non-Christian things. And there was very expensive statues, very expensive books that had all of these things related to it. And one of the things that they asked him is they were literally carrying boxes of things down flights of stairs to go into the dumpster. They were like, do uh, do Christians in America do this? Whenever they become Christians, do they throw away their, you know, basically what are, you know, pagan practices? And he, did, he didn't know what to, how to really respond to that because, well, for one, we don't have things like that. And then he kind of got into the weeds a little bit with them of like, well, the things that Christians in America are worshiping aren't exactly statues. You know, they worship, yeah. you know, we worship other things. We have other idols in America. So all that to say, it's, it is real, right? There are real things out there that we ought to be cautious of for sure. And especially it's kind of one of those things of the question of eating meat sacrifice idols. If if you're reading Harry Potter and you have a history with Wicca or witchcraft or or any of those other things and it's triggering things like of your past or bringing things up or or creating stumbling blocks in you then abstain from that. You really shouldn't be exposing yourself to that. And and not only that, again going back to scripture, throughout the Old Testament God was explicit in helping the Israelites understand you're a people set apart. Do not participate in what the cultures around you do. And he goes as far as doing things like even how you dress should not conform to the way the cultures around you. Because, and this is another thing that we have a hard time understanding as Americans, everything has meaning, right? In other cultures, what you wear indicates you know, your class, it indicates your religion, it could indicate all a host of other things, the way you behave, the way the things you put on your body, 
have meaning. We've divorced a lot of the things we do from meaning in modern America. So we're sort of an outlier in that way. But around the world, that's not really the case, right? You know, there's a lot of thoughts that I have, like just as I'm listening to you, Matt, and specifically the idea of, you know, Christians, you know, are supposed to be distinct from the world. I can see that being a narrative that comes into somebody's mind in sort of the the reasons why you'd want to question or steer clear of some of this stuff is like, well, I'm supposed to be distinctive. You you've talked about how we're storytelling beings, you know, and 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 that's almost I could almost equate that to like my tendency to have like an idolatrous heart that wants to tell stories other than God's story, right? That tells the story of human triumph and you know my not my need for God and all that sort of things. And I, I feel like just as I was listening, I could I could hear some of that chatter in my head of like, yeah, if we're supposed to be like distinct or set apart from all the other world of storytelling, they're just making up stuff because they that, you know, it's it's got an agenda or all these different things that emphasize man and and we want to be so distinct that we don't we don't care about other stories because one story matters. It's the gospel and that's all that we care about. I can sort of hear that line of reasoning going on in my head. Um, I don't, I don't align with that or agree with that, but I'm sort of wondering if that is reflective of, of my own fears, or maybe some of the listeners also can relate with that sort of thinking of like, yeah, is, is this desire or this tendency to be storytellers, can that lead us into sort of an idolatry in the way we tell stories and fantasy? Shouldn't we just focus in on the gospel and, and the Bible stories? Um, what are, what are our thoughts on that? Does that even make any sense? It, it makes total sense. And, and Peter, there are a lot of people out there who would say, not like take exactly what you said and said, yes, this is what Christians should do. We should, we should separate ourselves from the world, just focus on the gospel and anything that is not explicitly biblical is pagan influence creeping in and we got to kill that. And and here's what's interesting. This is something I've actually learned recently. And again, I kind of want to affirm that in a, in principle. In principle I want to affirm we should be gospel-centered people, right? We we have been we have died to the old self and been raised with Christ. We are new people, right? So that's true. And that and and everything I want to say should fit in the context of that. Absolutely. But one of the things I've learned recently is about this book by Reverend Alexander Hislop. Um, And this was written back in the 1800s. And he wrote a book called The Two Babylons, subtitle Romanism and Its Origins. And this is a a book, if I can just be blunt, is essentially an anti-Catholic propaganda diatribe type piece of material. It it goes into some very sketchy historical research and I'm using historical in in air quotes there and and some very interesting interpretive framework of certain passages in the Bible and essentially he lays out an idea that all the symbolism and all sorts of things associated with the Catholic Church is actually pagan and it's and in the end it's it was written in a time and written by a person who was just anti-catholic and it emphasized it, it found you know hidden demons behind every little rock kind of a thing and 
without, you know, back in the context of what I'm saying, we are gospel-centered people, but it was, it, it's so bad in terms of its pseudo-historical research. It was literally just propaganda out to destroy a religion, uh, another perspective uh, on religion. And, and, and guess what? The religion that he endorsed was the only true Christianity. Right. Surprise, surprise. We And we've seen things like this in the history of Christianity. We've seen some pretty stark divisions. And we've talked briefly about this. We have, There's a lot more to talk about in that regard of how of our, our own personal expression of Christianity and obedience to scriptures. Right. There's a lot there. But I mean, even just right here between the three of us, we have a little bit of diversity in terms of our denominational commitments. So all of that to say is there is that that has had such a, a poignant impact on the way Christians think about certain things. And it's, it's essentially a scare tactic and it has bled out into a lot of the way we see a lot of things. So for example, around Christmas time, you're probably going to see some memes floating around on social media that say something to the effect of everything about Christmas is pagan. Uh, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th, and the Christmas tree is a pagan fertility symbol and all these different things, right? Well, the truth is, is we live in a world where there's been a lot of culture and life that's happened, and just about everything you can find in this world has some sort of symbolism that means something else to another group of people who are not Christians, right? I mean, the pine cone was a Greek fertility symbol, for Dionysus, right? I mean, so, but, but so what? I think pine cones are beautiful and they look great on our kitchen, on our Christmas decorations. So who well, cares? Well, and the important point there is that it, just because it was in another culture and means something else somewhere else, that's not the source and origin of it for Christian usage. Absolutely. It's not like we took it, you know, we didn't take a pagan thing and turn it into a Christian thing and therefore it's somehow sneaking a demon in. Most right. of these things, I mean, we actually, they are, they're our own symbolism for our own reasons, and there's not this grand conspiracy behind all the symbolism. Right. I, I don't think there is. There are some people who will make that case, and if they want to have that discussion, I'd welcome them to have that. I, I'm open to discussing that. But I don't think there is this deep conspiracy that's running through the currents of Christianity that's trying to corrupt and steal people away from the true faith. I just don't see yeah. that. Well, it, my mind is coming back to the question, and I'm thinking that one of the mistakes that seems to be made, in my opinion, about fantasy and uh, fairy stories and fiction, you know, fantastic stories, is when we're against them, what, what, what they're actually against is the form. Hmm. So... The reaction is, ah, this this story has magic in it. This story has fantastical creatures in it. And so I'm what I'm nervous about, or what people get nervous about, is the form. Mm -hmm. As if the form is, you know, whether whatever the content is. It's like it's basically like saying, I'm upset about the symbol, not what the symbol represents. Mm -hmm. I look at the symbol and say, well, that's a bad way to symbolize a truth. It's somehow carrying other meaning. And in that respect, I think for Lauren's sake, I think, Lauren, you're on to something when you say the symbolism of a Chinese or Japanese, I don't know which one it is, but of, of a 
fantasy story, an anime story, the symbolism in that culture is borrowing from their culture. And so there's other representations there. However, the content of the story, the importance of redemption still comes through in those symbols. And I think those, that content can be a universal truth regardless of what kind of form it takes. Well, I, I, what I'm hearing you say, and also in some of what you're saying, Matt, is like all truth is God's truth, right? So if, if there is some good and true and beautiful element in a, in a story, whether it be fantastical or anything, that isn't validating whatever other messages that story may be telling. Like, oh, I read Harry Potter and there was this really cool like redemption relationship thing. That must mean witchcraft is like real. Like that's, that's a non sequitur that doesn't follow, but we, so we can appreciate the good, true and beautiful about a story without feeling compelled or necessarily affirming everything within that. And I don't know, is that kind of what you were saying there, Brandon, that just because there's a symbol, like, I don't know, we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, I think so. I think what I'm, what I'm noticing is there's sort of two kinds of superstitious th mindset that happens. There's the superstitious mindset that says there's a demon behind every rock. We have to be careful. We have to, you know, throw, throw out anything in my house that has a symbol on it that could be used for something other than whatever. Um, but there's also this kind of, well, well, and that same exact mindset is the kind of mindset that says, if you mention the word wizard in a story, that's got power. That's got demonic influence. Like that's, it's, in fact, it's, it's sort of like the superstitious mindset that overemphasizes the power of the spiritual, um, leads to a kind of legalism in this domain as well. And I want to, like, I want to reference back to, I think for me, guiding lights in this area, which are Lewis and Tolkien. And so Tolkien wrote an article that we shared around called Sometimes Fairy Stories Say Best What Must Be Said. Lewis, if you can hear me, terrible title, dude. But anyway. <laughs> Shame on you, Brandon. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> it's a terrible title. But in the story, in that, it's it's essentially his explanation for how he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, his process in writing. And in, in so doing, he defends writing fantasy or fairy stories, as he calls it. And what he, what he distinguishes is that the artist part of him comes up with these great images, these symbols, and they get a story around them. And that's just, there's, there's nothing about that that has any particular Christian meaning. It's just a really fun idea, great images. And he puts them into this great story form. And then the artistic impulse wants to find some kind of outlet for that. And so he asks the question, well, what form can best fits these, this story I have, these images I have? Is it poetry? Is it, is it a, a certain kind of fiction? Is it a whatever? And, and he landed on fairy story, which is a particular category in his mind and is, but I'm so, because he liked as he says, the constraints, he had to tell it in a certain way and that fit his idea. But then he talks about, okay, but then the other part of him, the, like the utilitarian part of him comes in and says, well, is this even worth doing? Can I do anything? Like, 
Is this, yes, that'd be a fun creative project, but it's going to take a lot of time and energy. Is it worth doing? And that part of him says, well, yeah, it's worth doing because this great story and these fantastical images, I can actually teach something with as well. That's not why he wrote it. He didn't write it because he wanted to teach something. He wrote it because he just wanted to write something fun. He was enjoying it. But the practical side of him says, but I can also use it. And that's why he chose the form fairy story, because the two melded together. One, it fit his creative vision. And two, it fit his educational purposes, although he even re- he doesn't like that. But And here's what he says about it. He says that the fairy story, the fantasy story, the fantastic story has a kind of ability to, and this is quoting him, steal past certain inhibitions which had paralyzed much of my own religion in childhood. Why did one find it so hard to feel as one was told one ought to feel about God or about the sufferings of Christ? There's his inhibition. Why should I I find it really hard to feel about God as if he's real or that Jesus loves me? And he goes on, I thought the chief reason that it was hard to feel this way was that one had been told one ought to. An obligation to feel can freeze feelings. And so fairy stories, he says, get past those watchful dragons. In other words, and I love that phrase, these watchful dragons. In other words, the fairy story allows one to feel things about God, about reality, without telling you you have to. It's an invitation to feel things. And it steals past that kind of cynicism that the rationalistic mind said, oh, well, this isn't true. This isn't real. This isn't biblical enough. You can't use magic. All of that just kills the actual religion of it all. It kills the actual feeling of it. Hmm. And so his he chose that form because it is powerful. Fantasy is an incredibly powerful form. But not, I think this goes back to what you were saying, Matt. It's not because it has some magical demonic power. It's because it connects back to we are creative in the image of God. We are storytellers. And so a fantasy story where we get to create a whole new world like Lauren likes to do resonates with something really deep within our resonance with God's image. We love creative fantasy because God created a world out of his creative fantasy and created us out of that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just can't help, but I, I got to follow up. I don't know if you guys have heard of this author, but Holly Ordway was a atheist, completely secular person going through university, but she was absolutely in love with the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien. And in her I think she was pursuing her doctorate and she was writing about Tolkien and basically she came to Christ through that, those works because it awakened her imagination. It awakened something in her heart that says this, I don't believe that middle earth and Elrond or Galadriel are actually real, but there's something in me that wishes they were. There's something in me that wishes this was true. And what was that awakening in her? It was awakening in her. Well, I I think it was the Holy Spirit at work, right? And then she eventually became a Christian through her research of 
these fantasy novels. And speaking of Tolkien, I have a quote from him too that I want to read, but both Lewis and Tolkien actually think that fantasy is in a sense more real. So the insistence on strict literal realness is a kind of reductionism. Hmm. And what that person has experienced that you're describing is a touch with the more real. Of course, Middle Earth is not a, quote, literal real place. It is a symbol, an image, a parable for, as to refer back to Jesus, right? Of a deeper, truer reality of the presence of God, of the, the story being told throughout all of history. Like, if you're a Tolkien fan and you've you like the Lord of the Rings, then you understand like one of the things that is most compelling about those stories is that a small person's life has immense significance. That is actually a more true truth than the kind of rationalistic thing that small people don't really matter and our lives aren't meaningful and nothing really has any purpose. No, like I resonate with Tolkien because it means my life, however small it is, has a huge impact. That's the story. That's the truth. And of course you go, yeah, that's actually more true. Okay, so Tolkien, right? So here's what he says. Here's a quote straight from him. He says, fantasy, of course, starts out with an advantage, arresting strangeness. But that advantage has been turned against it and has contributed to its disrepute. So I'm I'm now hearing Lauren's friends saying, I don't like fantasy. I don't like magic, right? Tolkien says, many people dislike being arrested. They dislike any meddling with the primary world or such small glimpses of it as are familiar to them. They therefore stupidly and even maliciously confound fantasy with dreaming in which there is no art, and with mental disorders in which there is not even control, with delusion and hallucination. Right? And there's the mistake. Oh, because it's fantastic, the form, that must be evil, must be out of control, must be... And he's saying, no, 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 no. What they're afraid of is actually that it's arresting their small-mindedness and opening them up to a greater reality. And they're afraid of that. Yeah, C.S. Lewis has a very similar idea. I have his little book called The Reading Life, where he just basically talks about why reading isn't spectacular and wonderful. But he kind of addresses the claim that people level against fantasy or fairy tales that they lead people into, you know, escaping reality because, you know, like, and they give people these visions for their life that are so preposterous. They lead people astray. They're terrible. And he says that that's like, it's the opposite, actually. It's the stories that we tell ourselves that are so close to real life that we think we could attain them. You know, the school tales, the, the, the everyday life sort of fantasies that those, because they're almost attainable, we can shipwreck ourselves trying to attain, you know, I, I have this fantasy of being, you know, MVP of my sports team. And like, we chase after that with everything we have and it, it consumes us, but when we're in the land of elves and dragons, like we don't actually have these visions of like, well, I'm going to go off and fight a dragon now. Like 
that because of the form of fantasy, like the central truths of heroism and courage, those can cut through and affect us in positive ways without us being like consumed with like, yeah, like, oh, I, I somehow believe now that I'm called to fight dragons. But those, so they're less dangerous. Fantasy, the truths that can be communicated there, like can be almost, um, they're pure, unadulterated because they're within a setting in which we can receive them without getting confused about the particulars. Whereas stories that are yeah. hit so close to home, sometimes we can't determine the act that we're reading in the books from the value of the courage and heroism. And so we think, oh, well, I must be this great athlete in order to, to be courageous or something like that. And that can really right. be harmful. Yeah, I think fantasy, because it has that ability to break us out of our smallness, yeah, like its power is that it helps us to see things more clearly, truth more clearly, precisely because it is fantastic. I'll read another quote from Tolkien just to kind of follow that. He says, fantasy is a natural human activity. It certainly does not destroy or even insult reason. It does not either blunt the appetite for nor obscure the perception of scientific veridity, truth. On the contrary, the keener and clearer is the reason, the better fantasy it will make. If men were ever in a state in which they did not want to know or could not pursue, perceive truth, facts, or evidence, then fantasy would languish until they were cured. If they ever get into that state, it would not seem at all impossible. Fantasy will perish and become morbid delusion. Hmm. And what scares me about that quote is, I think we're actually there. I think we're in a place where people that struggle to perceive factual reality and notice what's happening to our storytelling. It's becoming flat, uninteresting, not very fantastic. Well, and not only that, but the ones that do try to capture something that is exciting or edgy or just anything that's not flat actually ends up going the other way and, and exploring things that are very dark and tragic and harmful. And it's, it's kind of scary when I look at the selections that I have on Netflix or any other, the other streaming platforms and how many of those protagonists and heroes actually end up destroying themselves or destroying others in whatever their quest is. And that's because it is devoid of any gospel truth. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, those are unsatisfying stories because it doesn't actually carry any truth to it. The only, ha only thing it has is what the world has to offer, which is empty cisterns. Yeah. yeah. When this, I actually think that the danger of fantasy is more that, it's, that it is so good at teaching and so good at stealing past our, our defenses. And it's not the exclusive domain of God's people, you know? So a fantasy story, a story in the form of fantasy in the hands of a reductionist, a materialist, a whatever is actually far more dangerous because it can kind of, to, to reverse Lewis's phrase, it can, steal past the watchful angels around the garden, hmm. right? It can 
it can dis- it can actually destroy our it's like the serpent gets into the garden with these beautiful images and these fantastic ideas and says, "Yeah, can you really trust what God said? There really isn't anything more than this." Uh, it's it's the you know, every fantasy movie in America now is polit- highly politicized because there's no stories to be told. They're just kind of playing out political tropes. And that's actually even more dangerous, I think. Well, that's true. And and that's the thing. Artists from the time of the ancient Greeks have recognized we have a platform and we can use it to further our agendas. That's been the truth of every yeah. artist since the history of art. And that's true. So I think going back to our, our listener question is it's a double-edged sword. It really is because the things that we consume and watch can sneak in compromises to our Christian life. Namely, I mean, it's been the truth, I mean, ever since modern TV, but uh, compromising of our sexual values and, and our, our pursuit of purity in the name of Christ in uh, stories. You know, romance stories are great. Every romance story has a hint of the gospel in it because the gospel is essentially God pursuing his people, right? So there's a lot there, but at the same time, romance has been corrupted into mere eros and not mm-hmm. not a yeah, not lust. the pure love that parallels what the gospel is, right? Yeah. Do you think sort of a summary then for Lauren would be something like first storytelling and perhaps fantasy and magical storytelling par excellence, like as like the highest form of it in some sense is, is not evil, not bad, not wrong. In fact, it's a natural outcome of the fact that we are creative beings in the image of our creator. And so to focus on the form of it, oh, that's a fantasy story that has magical or mystical or whatever elements to it is to miss something important. Like if you, if that's why you're ruling it out and saying, oh, it's, it's in that form and therefore I can't trust it. You're actually sort of cutting off a part of reality that is so necessary and deep within us out of a kind of legalistic fear. That's, I'd say that's part one of the answer. Part two of the answer is what you're saying, Matt, is recognize that stories of all kinds, but especially these kinds of fantasy stories, have a great power to teach and steal past our defenses and bring truths or falsehoods into our souls in a way that other stories may not have quite that power. So yes, it's right to be cautious, but cautious in the right place. It's not just that it has magic or fantasy or anything else that's the problem. It's what is the, what is the realities, the truths, the, the stuff that's being brought into that, that, that we should be cautious of and be careful of. And those, those two things are interrelated. Form and content are going to interrelate. But there's a mistake in saying that form is all bad. And there's a mistake in saying any story is all good. We got to be cautious and wise, sort of wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Well, and, and I, would even, I would even further that by just saying, I think, I think it's an essential skill that all Christians in the modern world with the amount of connectivity we have and the amount of exposure we have to content is that all Christians need to become good critics. 
And when I say critics, I don't just mm -hmm. mean people who find fault or criticize, right? But I mean, mm -hmm. actually the ability to critique and criticize and identify what's happening in a story. You know, a great exercise for parents to begin with their kids is after you watch anything, whether it's a Disney movie or whether it's a classic movie or, or anything, any content you consume, is after the show, talk about it and say, what is the worldview behind this show? Like, like, what is it that, like, what is it the characters believe about the world? But then also the people who produce this story, what do they see? How do they see the world? And they're, 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 they're giving us a lens to see the world the way they see it. That's what storytelling is in, in essence. Mm -hmm. And so to ask yourselves, what is it that they're trying to show us about the world? And do we agree with that? I actually have two movie recommendations for our people, for our listeners. One of them's rated R, so it's an adult movie, and so be cautious. The other one's a Disney animated movie. So the first one is Elysium with Matt Damon. Watch that movie and, and see if you can see any gospel parallels. See if you can see something in there that is pointing to the truth. Right? And, and I'm, I don't think that the, the people who produce that movie are Christians at all. But they might be seeing something that is true. And the second one is a Disney movie called Reina and the Last Dragon. This was their big animated movie that came out a few years ago. And it's actually great. It's really great. Now, hmm. when you watch this, you are going to see certain Eastern concepts that, that surround a little bit of, you know, Eastern mysticism type things or w Eastern ways of viewing the world. Cause it's, it's, it's set in, you know, a, a fan fantasy China and there's dragons in it. Right. But watch that show. And, and if you watch it through a gospel lens, it is the gospel in a movie form. Mm. It's, it's profound. Mm. And I think it's something worth celebrating and pointing out. And it, and it can become a vehicle to, in, to have conversations with people and say, look at this, look at the way that this story talked about redemption. Isn't that cool? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to, I want to say two things. One is I agree with you. We should, we should critique that is think about what we watch or what we read or whatever, but I've grown an appreciation for the, the, the wisdom of not doing that in certain cases as well. So there is a, I think within the last couple decades, within the kind of branches of Christianity that we run in, there has been a lot of fear and people have been ca captivated by this idea that I can identify a worldview in a book or a movie or a story, and which is true, you can, and that's great, but that has become another subtle form of control, which is like, actually what we're supposed to do with stories is critique them and understand their philosophy. And nobody really ever said that, but it's just because every time we watched something, we critiqued it. So what I would recommend for parents to do is to do that with the things that need to be critiqued. Hmm. You know, you're watching a, you're watching a cartoon that, mm, boy, those are some interesting, not good Christian ideas, critique it, not criticize, but like, think about it. Oh, what is that saying? What is, but when you read the Chronicles of Narnia, please don't, don't stop and ask, what is Lewis trying to tell me here? 
when you read the Lord of the Rings, do not have the conversation after dinner. What are the, what are the biblical worldviews? Because what that subtly does is teach your kid that the story is not the fun. The joy of the story is not the point. The getting the right philosophy is no Lewis and Tolkien would roll over in their graves and slap you. If you could, if they could, <laughs> if you read their books that way, you know, I mean, they literally, yeah. I know this because they say it in their writings. Yeah. Lew, they do not want you to do that because it ruins the story, which is the actual point. The joy. Okay. The second thing I want to say is, Lauren, this is, I think this is what you're listening for. So if you're still this far in, here is the answer to your question. All right. We've, I've saved this to the end just because it's so awesome. <laughs> if you want to hear a really brilliant person, very kindly, but not subtly kind of take on the legalist who says that fantasy has is bad then you have to hear what Tolkien says. So in regards to the question of fantasy, he says this, this is a quote from his essay on fairy stories. So as for its legitimacy, that is for fantasy stories, as for its legit legitimacy, I will say no more than to quote a brief passage from a letter I once wrote to a man who described myth and fairy story as lies. Though, to do him justice, he was kind enough and confused enough to call fairy story-making breathing a lie through silver. This is great. Are you ready? Because he wrote a poem to this guy. <laughs> Dear sir, I said, although now long estranged, man is not wholly lost nor wholly changed. Disgraced he may be, yet is not dethroned and keeps the rags of lordship once he owned. Man, sub-creator, the refracted light through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues, an endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. Though all the crannies of the world we filled with elves and goblins Though we dared to build gods and their houses out of dark and light, and sowed the seeds of dragons, t'was our right, used or misused. That right has not decayed. We make still by the law in which we're made. I'm going to read it one more time, just for the people on the road who don't have to back it up, because I know it's hard, but this is a... We, this is a glorious kind of smackdown from a really brilliant person. <laughs> so, and it recalls us right back to we are in the image of God's storytellers. Here's the poem again. Dear sir, I said, although now long estranged, man is not wholly lost nor wholly changed. Disgraced he may be, yet is not dethroned, and keeps the rags of lordship once he owned. Man, sub-creator, the refracted light through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues, and endlessly combined in living shapes 
that move from mind to mind. Though all the crannies of the world we filled with elves and goblins, though we dared to build gods and their houses out of dark and light, and sowed the seeds of dragons, t'was our right, used or misused. That right has not decayed. We make still by the law in which we're made. I love that so much. Yeah, leave it to Tolkien, right? So, Lauren... Do you know, do you know who you wrote that uh, to? Do you know the story behind that? He doesn't say. I know. He just says that... Oh, do you? Yeah. This was the conversation that he had with C.S. Lewis before C.S. Lewis was a Christian. And this was one of the <laughs> things that, can, that, that began that work in C.S. Lewis, to begin thinking of hmm. Christianity as not just lies breathed through silver, but as hmm. the true myth that we can that actually happened mm. that the redemption story that the real god performed to save all of the earth right isn't that awesome hmm. that's awesome so this is so the the confused man is lewis and tolkien wrote this poem back to him mm -hmm. Hmm. that's mm -hmm. that's amazing Lauren, I, I guess we should have just started the podcast with that and ended with that. <laughs> if you could translate that into Chinese and send it to your friends, please do. Uh, good luck. And if you do, let us know. We'd love to publish it for you. But that that's awesome. Guys, thank you. I What a fun back porch conversation. Yeah. <laughs> it, do you guys think there's any place for like a brief book recommendation? Like, I mean, as you were talking about, there's, I don't know. We, I know that we love reading and these books... And we have that, like a recommended reading list on our website. But like, I don't know. Is there any fantasy books that you guys love that you would recommend as a case for? This is good fantasy. Read this. It is wonderful, enriching, and I don't know. What do you think? Totally. I mean, obviously, we've already talked about the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings, which most people already know about. So those are, those are out there. I have to add my... I, I don't the Narn Chronicles of Narnia are so so in my mind like I love them people love them don't don't come and you know tar and feather <laughs> me for saying that but they're not the kind of thing that I like go back to but Lewis's space trilogy far and away my favorite sci-fi fantasy story that Lewis ever wrote and man I just love those things now that they're a little more heady that's probably why I like them but gosh they're so good yeah I don't know Matt do you have anything well, I've already said several. I think John Bunyan's works are, are really great. And he writes in that old English style that's fun. If if you're if you like words that are old and, and are fun like that. And I've I've already said it on the podcast many times before, but Hannah Hernard's book, Hind's Feet on High Places, is another fantastic allegory that is beautiful and excellent. Not so subtle, right? Because Jesus is one of the characters in the book, but yeah. How about you, Peter? So there is a series called, I think, the Lightbringer series by Brent Weeks. It's a five-book series, and they're big books. If you are a reader who loves big books, these are for you. You'll have plenty of content to go through. But he does come from a Christian perspective. The magic system in his books is based on the spectrum of light. It's just delightful. It is such good writing. Some of the, my favorite characters I have ever gotten to know in a book is the main protagonist and his character arc and it, I don't know, the, the, the whole arc of the five books 
preaches the gospel to me. Literally, I was crying. I read I read the fifth book because that's the only one I own. I read it, I reread it not too long ago. And literally I was getting to the end pages and, and like just weeping because it was it was beautiful in a true right and good and like wow that is that is not just some I don't know fanciful like and everything worked out and it was great because of I don't know like it was the way he incorporates the satisfying resolution was to me a reminder of God's love and sovereignty and and his ability to redeem and restore even really broken things so I would recommend that book it's probably for mature readers it has a lot of violence and some real the real dark sides of life and warfare so it's not to be endorsed i don't endorse it without a caveat yeah i want to add if you haven't read jonathan strange and mr norrell by susanna clark you are missing out on one of the best modern fantasy novels of all time She's only written two books. Her second one's not actually that good, in my opinion. This book is, it is, it is a fairy story. Like it is fairy and it, it is so good. Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. It's fairly old now. I mean, I can't remember 10 years, 2004 is when it was published. So actually much older than that, but gosh, it's good. And if you've never read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell and you like fantasy, uh, you will not put this book down. It got made into a movie a couple, maybe 10 years ago. And don't watch that. I mean, the movie's fun, but don't watch it. Read The book is just astonishingly good. There were nights I read that book that like, I lost a lot of sleep because of that book. <laughs> there were, there were 3 a.m. mornings when I was like, please stop being so good. I've got to go to bed. <laughs> nice. So, Anyway, that's a good one too. Um, thank you guys. This has been a lot of fun. Listeners, thanks for joining us on the back porch for whatever random thing we decide to talk about. This time, we have loved the listener question. If you have a question that you want to send to us, shoot it to us at podcast at signpostin.org. We will try to respond both via email and on the podcast, but we want to hear from you. and want to have these conversations about whatever interests you so also look forward to the new year there's some cool stuff coming up we're we're not going to reveal it just yet it's still in the works but we're excited about some of the things that we're going to be doing on the podcast some of the interviews we're going to do and uh, we're glad to have you along for the ride please rate and review us and send us to your friends and all that good stuff and thank you so may the grace of christ go with you wherever the road takes you Thanks for listening. Don't forget to visit us at signpostin.org. While you're there, sign up for our e-newsletter and we'll send you a free ebook. Also, a big thanks to all of our supporters. Signpost In is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry, and we exist only because of our generous donors who make everything we do possible. Please consider supporting us with your recurring donation. Visit signpostin.org slash donate.